Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining us today. Today I'm joined by Dr. Martin Gabala, and we're going to be discussing interval training, specifically high-intensity interval training, what it is, what you can do to incorporate it in your own training, the benefits of it, and so much more. We also make a ton of references to Dr. Gabala's book, The One Minute Workout, and a lot of his research. So you can check all of that out in the links below. I highly recommend you do. I'm a huge fan of his book. I know that you guys are going to love this episode, so enjoy. Dr. Gabala, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on today. Thanks for having me. So as we were talking, I've been a long time fan and admirer of your work and the studies that you've published, but for people who aren't familiar aren't familiar with you, would you mind kind of filling them in about who you are and all the amazing things that you've been up to at uh, McMaster University? Yeah, sure. So I'm an exercise physiologist. I have a PhD in human physiology. Um, I've been at McMaster for almost 25 years now, and my research broadly is in three main areas. I look at basic physiological mechanisms. So what's the underlying molecular and cellular basis of exercise responses? Uh, and I'm interested in applied aspects as well, whether that be health-related outcomes, including in individuals at risk or afflicted by various chronic diseases, as well as performance in athletes uh, as well. So invariably, our, our work falls in, in one of those three areas. And a lot of our work that's gotten some attention has been related to interval training, in particular, brief, vigorous exercise. You know, and that's something, the more I learn about the athletic and scientific scientific history of interval training, the, the more I appreciate it. And so in some respects, it's it's a topic that we do rediscover every decade or so. So we often get a lot of credit, but I, I think that credit sometimes is misplaced because we're just uh, often, you know, as I say, rediscovering this um, topic, but often taking it in some new and different directions. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I can tell already that you're super passionate about the topic of interval training, so much so that you even wrote a book about it called The One Minute Workout. Now, I've read most of your book. I haven't finished it cover to cover, I'll admit. Uh, But for people who haven't heard of your book or seen that before, would you mind filling us in a little bit about what you have kind of talked about or what that book really tries to, what message it tries to send? Sure. So really, it, it tries to convey the science of interval training, in particular, these brief, vigorous workouts, and how they can be beneficial, especially for health. Uh, You know, the title of the book, The One Minute Workout, literally comes from studies that we've done, where we've had people do as little as three 20-second, very hard bursts of exercise, and shown that that can elicit some favorable health outcomes uh, that, uh, you know, that many people are interested in. Uh, Of course, many people cite time as a barrier. It's an excuse for a lot of individuals, clearly. Um, But there's no doubt, uh, in my mind at least, that uh, vigorous type exercise can be a time-efficient way to train, whether you're an athlete or you're someone looking for just general health and fitness. I don't have a lot of time for, you know, some people try to demonize traditional cardio, and then there's been a backlash against the interval training movement, if you will. Uh, I, we try to look at it is we're trying to expand the movement menu. Let's give people more options to choose from that are grounded in good science. And really, that's what the book tries to, to delve into, uh, including uh, considering applications in, in individuals who we think might not benefit or perform interval training, 
uh, such as in a cardiac rehab setting, for example. So you mean to tell me I don't have to spend two hours a day working out to get results? What? You know, this is where it starts <laughs> to sound like the infomercial, right? But, you know, and, and full stop, the, you know, the public health guidelines, which generally call for 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous exercise a week, they're, they're based on great science. Uh, but for those who don't have the time, inclination, uh, might just be interested in trying something different, uh, absolutely. You know, our work has shown that is as little as, you know, what we're studying now is something called exercise snacks, literally mm -hmm. less than one minute bouts of vigorous physical activity spread through the day. And can that be beneficial for you? And I would imagine now I haven't looked at the research yet, and I know you're doing it. Um, so I would imagine that would be very beneficial for a number of different reasons. Um, in general, I think we find the more sedentary someone is, the uh, more their underlying health is going to decrease. And I think that anything we can do to promote movement in general, even if it's not perfect, um, you know, I think a lot of times we spend so much time concerning ourselves with form and technique, uh, especially with something like running or sprinting, when in reality, we're probably not going to correct the way someone's run and sprinted their entire life in a matter of a few minutes, unfortunately. So I completely agree with um, your stance on it is I think we need to promote movement and find more unique ways for people to fit motion and exercise and activity throughout their entire day. Yeah, no, absolutely. You hit on a couple of really important things there. But, you know, the most recent iterations of the physical activity guidelines, whether that's the U.S. guidelines for Americans or the WHO guidelines, they removed a previous stipulation that activity had to be 10 minutes in duration to count. And that was, I think, in part in recognition of some of the research that's coming out showing that, you know, in fact, all activity does count, you know, these simple messages that we've given to people. And particularly with this idea of exercise snacks or breaking it up, you, you sort of can have a dual benefit. One is the enhancement of cardiorespiratory fitness and some other markers, but you're simultaneously breaking up those prolonged periods of sedentary behavior, as you noted, which we know is an, it's an independent factor for uh, adverse health outcomes. And now I would imagine that might even help people who are looking to gain in the performance realm as well, because there's a lot of people I've worked with in the endurance realm who their endurance training is like a two or three hour block of their day. And then the rest of the day, they're relatively sedentary. And I would imagine that it might be beneficial for them to sneak in some time in different heart rate zones throughout the rest of their day instead of just one huge spike and then chilling in zone one the rest of the day. Yeah. And there's even some recent research because, you know, most, you know, most serious endurance athletes are already incorporating some type of interval training into their workouts. The, you know, the classic recommendation, if you're doing a high volume is the 80, 20 split, but there's not a ton of research looking at, well, what type of interval training is, is best. Uh, and there's some recent work showing that more high intensity sprint type efforts. So we're talking here, repeated 30 second sprints uh, may actually potentiate performance further in truly high level athletes. We're talking about elite cyclists with mean VO2 max values of, of 70 plus. So that, you know, that, and that's some recent uh, research uh, that is, uh, you know, tried to address interval training from a performance standpoint in very high level athletes. I love that. I love that. Now, as we're talking research, I know you've done a ton of it yourself on interval training and endurance training. Uh, and I believe was your original study using the Wingate protocol. Is that correct? Yeah, it was. And so our first study published in 2005 
Uh, so the Wingate test, some of your listeners may be aware, others may not, but basically it's it's a 30 second all out effort on a specialized uh, cycle ergometer. So a specialized bike. Uh, and it's, you know, anyone who's done one, it's probably the longest 30 seconds of your life is the common, common joke because it's extremely demanding type of exercise. And we were having people repeat those wind gates four, five, six times in a session. So that's only two or three minutes of very, very intense exercise in about a 20 minute time commitment. But, uh, you know, that work showed it was very, very potent to improve both your performance as well as elicit cellular changes in your muscle, increases in mitochondrial content and, uh, and things like that. Right, right. And I think that's what AMPK PGC1 alpha stimulation is the main mechanism. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, uh, fast forward, some of the work by us and, and many others has been looking more at the effect of these brief, vigorous workouts on some of these molecular signaling cascades, because at one time it was thought that, for example, PGC1 alpha, you could only activate that protein uh, by doing, you know, prolonged periods of modern intensity work. And, and clearly there's, there's many different ways, you know, I, I'm not sure that interval training is particularly unique, other than it provides a different way to stimulate the physiological remodeling process. And it appears to be able to do it in a particularly time efficient manner or with a surprisingly smaller volume of exercise as compared to more traditional, moderate intensity, continuous approaches. So what would you say this means for, say, the average endurance athlete or even a high level endurance athlete, someone who's going for an Ironman or half Ironman, something like that? Are they still going to need to do a lot of low intensity steady state work or can they start to say, hey, you know, instead of running for an hour and a half today, I'm just going to do a 20 minute run, but I'm going to do a very interval focused type of run. Yeah. So I, I think, I think that's the million dollar question. <laughs> um, we, we don't know, and it depends on so many things And I don't want to hedge, but of course, you know, a big thing that it depends on is total training volume. And so I think the traditional recommendation is still again, that 80, 20 split. If you're doing, you know, 20, 25, 30 hours a week of serious endurance training, my personal opinion, and there's some research to back this up would be that as total training volume gets smaller, you can have a greater reliance on intense interval training without sort of dipping into the, the overtraining, you know, uh, or overreaching uh, phenomenon. Uh, so I guess that'd be point number one. Point number two is, of course, there's massive individual differences. And so you take 100 people who present very similar, you give them the same program, some are going to thrive, some are going to wither. And so definitely you need to find what works for you. But the short answer to your question would be yes. I think that incorporating more shorter, vigorous intervals can be particularly time efficient way to promote benefits, uh, especially in people who I call them, you know, serious um, athletes who otherwise are regular people. They're, they're holding down jobs or families or things like that and really don't have 30 hours a week to train like a high, high level athlete who only worries about training uh, has. Right, right. A hundred percent. And now you mentioned about the need for individualization, which I completely agree with. Unfortunately, there's no magic formula, cookie cutter answer for everyone. Now, we already talked about the Wingate test and how that uses 30 second intervals. Um, but I know that you've looked at other time periods as, for intervals as well. Um, so for people listening who might want to take some of what we're talking about with interval training and apply it to their own, what other 
types of protocols should they look to apply and how should they look to progress them? Should they look to change the interval duration or should they keep the ratios constant? Should they increase the total time? What would be your kind of preferred progressions? I'll ask. Yeah. And probably the, you know, the attractive and frustrating answer is all of the above. Like, you know, and so I, I think, you know, one of the things that interval, and so, you know, let, let's even take a step back. What is interval training? Really? It's just alternating periods of higher intensity effort, with lower intensity effort or complete rest for recovery. Now the devil's in the detail there, of course, well, you know, how are we defining intensity? Is it just based on subjective markers like RPE? Is it based on lactate or percentages of VO2 max? But I think for wherever you set your zones, you can think of interval training as falling within what I call green, yellow, and red zones. So green is sort of light to moderate intermittent exercise. You know, the classic example for the average person would be intermittent walking uh, exercise. But for athletes, it would be, you know, low to moderate intensity sublactate threshold zones, uh, sublactate uh, threshold one zone. Then that sort of yellow zone is what we consider hard, vigorous, but submaximal exercise. So you're still below VO2 max uh, pace. Um, you know, maybe you're in a critical power uh, zone and then above that are red zone or very intense super maximal to all out efforts you know that range right up to full all out sprints you know that only last 20 or 30 seconds or so and so i think for most athletes they are working in that yellow or red zone when it comes to intervals and probably the lower end would be repeated efforts that can last 8 10 even as long as 16 minutes uh and then the classic, I think, high intensity interval training for athletes are repeated four to five minute efforts, you know, where you're eliciting at least 90, 95% of maximal heart rate. And then right to the upper end would be these all out 30 second sprints that we were talking about. Uh, you know, in, in some ways, uh, given these individual differences, and it's so hard to predict who's going to do well on one, it's a bit like the investing analogy. You know, you want to spread your you know, you might hit a home run with one stock or one approach, but probably for most people, they're going to have a, a well-rounded portfolio that allows them to dabble in different areas. And that's probably going to give more consistent, steady returns over the long term. You know, ideally you can dial it in and you know what really works for you. Uh, but for most of us, I think variety is best and, and spreading out uh, the types of loads and intensities is going to be the, the provide the most value. I love the comparison to investing. Uh, and I find that true in a lot of senses in the world of health and fitness is it's rarely one specific thing that you do that gives you all the results. It's usually a combination of all of them. So the more diverse you can make your portfolio, the better you are to likely to do long term. And I think that um, you were we were talking a little bit there about um, changing the duration of the intervals. And that's something that I think could be applied beyond endurance training and even into the world of just sports performance in general. So if I've got a soccer player that needs to get ready for conditioning, hey, maybe one day I'll do eight second bursts all out sprint and give them 15, 20 seconds to recover because that's the specific adaptation to the imposed demand of soccer. And maybe some days I'll mix in some of those longer intervals. Sure, it might not be, you know, you're not going to jump in a soccer match and sprint for two minutes straight without stopping. 
but the conditioning effect that that gives you will probably pay dividends as you're hitting minute 80, minute 90, and overtime of a soccer match, just using that as an example. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's a that's a great approach. And again, variety is uh, is key here. And of course, you know, athletes, especially those involved in high volume training, any way you can sort of break it up, even to bring, you know, the motivational aspect to prevent the boredom or overuse of specific motor unit patterns or muscle use patterns uh, may be uh, may be beneficial. Now, you bring up a great point there about specific overuse of a certain activity. And I know we've talked a bit on the running side and we've dabbled a little bit on the cycling side, but I understand that your research has looked at other things instead of just running and cycling. I think you've looked at stair climbing and another, a few other different types of endurance modalities. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. And, and again, this is where, you know, really depends on who the individual is. So, if you know, if it's an athlete uh, who's very targeted in a specific sport or event, these generalities may not be as appropriate. But for the, again, the average person who's interested in, in health and fitness, uh, yeah, you know, there's the old saying that I'm sure you're aware of, the heart doesn't know what the muscles are doing. And so there's many different ways to stress the cardiovascular system. And so I think for for many people, that's an empowering message because, there's nothing magic about running. You can use stair climbing. You can use elliptical. You can use swimming. Uh, you can use ballroom dancing. Uh, you know, you can use body weight style exercise, but many types of activities that don't require specialized equipment, don't require much space. Uh, and so, you know, for a lot of people, they still think, well, it's not exercise or it doesn't count unless I change into spandex, go to the gym for an hour. And it's really just reminding people that, no, there's a lot of ways to get vigorous physical activity into your day and it doesn't have to be fancy and probably varying it up is going to be again you know consistent message there the best thing for you that being said if you hate running and but you really enjoy swimming or ballroom dancing make that your activity of of choice to uh to promote some gains in fitness I love that you bring up the ballroom dancing because when I was in school years ago doing the ACSM uh, book and all that, I remember looking at some of the different like activities they listed for metabolic equivalents and ballroom dancing was on there, mowing your lawn was on there, riding a tractor, all these weird things. And at the time I was just kind of like, really? We're counting that as exercise? And now I'm like, hey, we're counting that as exercise. I like it. Um, so it's amazing how the paradigm shifts. And I think uh, another huge point too, you've kind of alluded to this, and I know your research looks at this a lot, is all of these exercise types of modalities are so good for your underlying health. And it doesn't matter if you have something like, say, type 2 diabetes. Obviously, you want to be safe. You want to take uh, you know, into consideration your blood sugar level. You want to consult with your primary care provider, all of those important steps. But you can exercise with type 2 diabetes and you could possibly even prevent type 2 diabetes from developing if you do the right types of exercise. Or I think it's uh, Verta Health is actually doing some work now to reverse type 2 diabetes through a combination of diet and exercise. So it's like we are literally using exercise as medicine, which I don't believe has ever been done to the level that we're talking about right now. And even if you are someone who's young, you're fit, you're looking for high performance, never forget the long haul and the long term, because at the end of the day, if you don't have your health, nothing else is going to matter to you. No, 100%. And, you know, many people will discount interval training out of hand for individuals, you know, unless you're a high level athlete or unless you're very fit. And, you know, there are hundreds of studies a year now, literally 
applying interval training in various settings. You know, I mentioned cardiac rehabilitation, but it's been applied in individuals uh, who are older with metabolic syndrome, uh, with type 2 diabetes, many different conditions. And again, not saying it's the best type of exercise for them, but just making the point that there's many other options that these individuals uh, can choose from. Your point's well taken about ideally checking with your primary care provider before you start or change your exercise uh, routine. But, you know, big picture, people don't need to be afraid of, of interval training. Um, and it's, you know, the, the evidence now around safety are that, it, you know, it, it, it's, again, generally speaking, generally safe for most individuals to do, including those with, uh, with cardiometabolic uh, disease. Yeah, definitely. And I would imagine you could even take it and apply it to say a resistance training type approach too. like, hey, you know, I'm going to load up, you know, some bands or dumbbells or whatever. And I'm going to do this exercise for 15 seconds. And then I'm going to take a 30 second rest break. And then you can alter your uh, work time to rest time accordingly. As you progress, you can change the weight. There's so many different ways you can progress with it. And I love it because it's so different than what we've always done of sit there and count sets and reps over and over and over again. No, exactly. You know, I think body weight style interval training can be a tremendous hybrid, if you will. You know, if you keep the rest period short, you keep the heart rate elevated and that provides cardiovascular training stimulus, but you're getting the strength training benefits as well, especially if you're doing lower body exercise, you know, lunges, air squats, you know, it's not going to be the same, of course, as heavy resistance training, but for a lot of people, that doesn't matter. And so, again, these simple practical messages, reminders that there's lots of different ways uh, to do this. You know, I used to call them hotel room workouts. Then they sort of, you know, then it became COVID workouts when, <laughs> you know, we, we couldn't have access to anything else. But it's a really, it's a really uh, beneficial and valuable and approachable way to train, you know, and again, uh, how we rediscover things in the late 1950s, the Canadian government came out with a program called 5BX, which stood for five basic exercises. And it was designed for service members stationed in the far north at the height of the Cold War. And, you know, eventually it spread beyond the military and all these pamphlets were produced. But fundamentally, it was just a reminder over 50 years ago that body weight style interval training can be effective to promote your health. And again, it's a message we're relearning today. Definitely, definitely. I got to ask, what's your own workout routine and your own exercise split look like? Yeah, so, you know, I, I do a lot of cycle-based interval training. So the vast majority of my cardio training is is on the bike. Uh, you know, in, uh, in the summers and that, I try to ride outside as much as possible when the cold Canadian winters hit, it's, <laughs> it's inside. Um, and that's because I'm, a, I'm, you know, a classic individual with knee osteoarthritis. So I just can't run uh, anymore. Uh, I'm still able to ice skate, not very well, but I, I do play a weekly pickup hockey game. And so, you know, that's my main cardio training. And then I, I really like bodyweight style interval training, but, uh, most of my own training is, is at home. I sort of have a classic garage style gym that's in my basement with a power rack and, you know, kettlebells and a lot of the fundamentals. Uh, but I would say it's, it's really basic style resistance training with cycle-based intervals is the the heart of my uh, exercise regime. 
again, simple, mastering the basics and getting great results from it. I love that. And I also like how you mentioned that, you know, you have knee arthritis and I hear that a lot and people almost use it as like an excuse to, well, I'm not going to do anything because I have this. And that really creates a big downward spiral once people stop moving because of X or Y or Z. And arthritis is just the most common example I hear of all the time. So the fact that you're able to find ways to not only continue to move, but continue to challenge yourself while moving, because some of these cycle intervals we've talked about, especially Wingate, like you mentioned there, it is a long 30 seconds. Um, And naturally, you can break up that protocol even to an outdoor bike ride. You know, if you're going up a hill, well, it's naturally going to be more intense. Um, And if you're on a flat ground, hey, push harder for 20, 30 seconds and then just kind of let it ride and take a little break. You can build intervals in any different way. No, exactly. And, you know, and we've touched on the potential for cardiac risk and, you know, people need to ideally see their physician to, to rule out any underlying things. But another concern about interval training is often that it's Uh, it's more potentially injurious, especially for musculoskeletal or joint injuries. But that's where I think it really depends on the type of interval training. And so you can exercise very hard on a bike or other less or non-weight-bearing activities, swimming, for example, and there's no greater injury risk uh, than, than, you know, other uh, routines. It's it's really the the impact forces, you know, with the, the sprint running and things like that, where the potential injury risk is, is markedly elevated, I think. Yeah, definitely. Now, uh, you might have to correct me here if I'm incorrect in the, or correct me if I'm wrong here. Um, I forget if it was your book or it might have been Alex Hutchinson's book, Endure. But one of the books I was reading recently on endurance training was talking about how that whole idea of 10 out of 10 RPE, the whole concept of you're going to do this interval and you're going to push yourself to your max. Um, it basically proposed that humankind is not capable of pushing themselves to that max level physiologically, unless they're in like a life or death fight or flight type situation. You just can't get yourself to that level. And again, I don't know if that was your book or Alex's or another one that I was reading recently. Um, But would you say that that would change the outcome of the interval training that you're doing, your overall ability to, for lack of a better way to put it, embrace the suck and push yourself to a higher, uh, closer to 100% physiological load point, I'll call it. Yeah, I guess my response would be, at least in, in, in my book, we do use RPE ranges to try and put various workout examples in context for individuals. And so, you know, I, I do see a lot of value in RPE ratings, whether that's a zero to 10 scale or the, you know, the, the six to 20 uh, scale, but even simply one to one to 10. Um, first of all, it really individualizes uh, workouts, but you bring up a great point. And that's, I, I think that for many individuals, they think interval training has to be this all out as hard as you can go gut busting type workouts, which, you know, and many people may not be able to push themselves to that level, but it doesn't have to be that way at all. And so the classic definition of vigorous intensity exercise is seven or eight on a 10 point scale. And so it's, it's, you know, many people can get to those subjective levels, um, wherever their starting fitness level is. And it's, it's not critical or important to be hitting 10 out of 10, even occasionally you can have a lot of success with uh, submaximal interval training, if we call it that. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And I think that people forget that piece of it, the intensity, because 
interval training for uh, someone like me who hasn't been running in a few days, it might be from a brisk walk to a jog and then back to a brisk walk. And that is perfectly okay. You don't have to redline every single time you're doing it per se. No, a hundred percent. I think that's a really important uh, message that, uh, that, that we can't hear uh, enough. Yeah, definitely. And I think that applies even larger scale to all fitness and training. I think a lot of people have this belief that if they're not going to the max and they're not going to get the maximum result, when in reality, the majority of the research that I've seen across the board in endurance training, resistance training, all that sort of thing says, you should not go to the max every single time you train. You should have a periodized approach or a scaled approach up to where you want to be, but you shouldn't just go out there and train as hard as you possibly can every single day, every single time. Yeah, no, agree. And getting back to that investing analogy, I think, you know, when it comes to training, the plan is a lot more, Some, you know, the, the, the process of planning and adhering to a plan is more important than the exact precise details of what that uh, plan uh, is. <laughs> right, right. As you were doing all of your studies and research, has there been any findings that surprised you or shocked you when you found them? Or has everything kind of been, you know, what you expected to see, I'll say? No, I get we we continue to be surprised. You know, <laughs> often going into work, we have hypotheses and sometimes they work and sometimes they they don't or we have to change them. But, you know, one of the things we're currently interested in is, you know, there's there's renewed interest, I would say, in biological sex differences in responses to exercise writ large. And we know that there, you know, there hasn't always been a lot of diversity writ large in exercise uh, studies. You know, there's a lot of studies on on men. There's a lot of studies on young white males in, in particular. Um, and, you know, females uh, appear to respond differently to certain types of interval training, just like they may respond to certain types of exercise generally. And so to give a specific example, in some of our studies looking at these very short, very hard sprint type efforts, it's VO2 max or maximal exercise capacity increases uh, regardless of biological sex, but the way that it changes appears to be different in that the changes in the cardiovascular system in the female participants is not as pronounced. So that, for example, the changes in maximal cardiac output um, in our studies uh, tend to be lower in, in females compared to uh, matched male uh, participants. And so I think there's a lot of interesting work that needs to be done there still, uh, just to give one particular example. And I think the other is, you know, a lot of our studies and others are, are what we call small proof of concept studies. You know, they're not the grade A randomized controlled clinical trials, but that work is, is, is starting to get underway. And we, you know, we have currently registered clinical trials ongoing multi-center studies uh, to try and address these, these more comprehensive questions in, in a, in a more comprehensive manner. Right. Right. And even if it's not a randomized controlled trial, I'll say that one thing I love about your research is the design and the methodology is done very, very well. And I've seen other studies that, unfortunately, they make a few errors, uh, it, to me anyways. There's some blatant flaws in the design and method of the study. And unfortunately, if you don't have a good study setup, then the results can be 
skewed, I'll say, one way or the other. Um, and that's yeah, and one of the think, things you know, that I like other studies, you know, we've been criticized for that too. And have all our designs been perfect? No, absolutely not. Right. And, you know, we could go down rabbit holes in, <laughs> in terms of sample size estimates and how you power and, and things like that. But, you know, full stop, uh, the, the, the initial studies are more what we call these proof of concept studies. And we're just trying to ask interesting questions or questions that we think are interesting to us at least. And then, you know, I, you'll hear, you know, in, in some quarters, the knock that, well, this is a fad or a house of cards. I mean, come on, right. There's just, <laughs> you know, hundreds and hundreds of studies now over dozens of dozens of years demonstrating the effectiveness of interval training in various situations. You know, and again, athletes have known this for more than a century. So we're really taking new twists on, I think, fundamental principles that are already very, very uh, well established, you know, and some of those new directions are applying them in less healthy populations and trying to ask questions of, you know, does the type of training matter to promote specific responses, whether it's a measure of blood sugar control or uh, vascular, uh, you know, uh, elasticity or something like that, or blood pressure. Right. That's, again, one of the many things I respect about you is your willingness to really dig in deep on the study design. I thought everything that I've seen has been very well done. And overall, your willingness to take concepts like interval training and apply it to so many different populations, because unfortunately, as we've mentioned a few times, fitness is not one size fits all. It's different male versus female. It's different with any type of chronic disease you add to the picture. So unfortunately, you can't take results from, you know, healthy 18 to 20 year old males and apply them to healthy 22 year old females or, you know, 40 year old with this or 60 year old with that. Everyone responds so differently. And that's one of the things that I've loved about your work is it just seems like you're very passionate about what you do and you have been working very hard to find answers for all these different patient populations. Yeah, no, you're kind with your commentary. I appreciate it, of course. But, and you know, the other thing that I've tried to, um, or I've gotten more interested in, I think is really, really important are, are doing things like this, what we're doing right here, but it's really, it's science communication, it's knowledge translation, you know, it's fine to have these, um, theoretical studies. Uh, but unless you're really trying to translate the work, uh, you're, you're losing impact there. And so really trying to put the res the key results or the key messages from studies into hopefully messages that are accessible to many different individuals. And that's what I tried to do in, in, in my book, which was co-authored with a, a journalist friend, Chris Shulgin. And we tried to get that point where I was happy enough with the scientific message and and Chris felt it read in an accessible and hopefully compelling manner. But we would have these real knockdown, drag it out, late night arguments as we were writing the book. And I'd say, but we have to say it this way to stay true to the science, you know, to stay absolutely true to what we did in a study. And Chris would say, well, that's friggin' boring. No one wants to hear that. <laughs> and so I think it's important for scientists to be able to get out of that comfort zone a little bit. And the way that we write scientific studies are very cautious and we don't want to you know, go beyond the data uh, at all or extrapolate or interpret. Uh, but you really have to do that. I think if you're going to put it in messages, certainly for the general public, still capture the essence of what was done. But the way that you frame the message really needs to change or otherwise it's just completely lost on people. Completely agree. You know, a true expert is not someone who takes something complicated and makes it even more complicated but someone who simplifies it to a point where it still holds true, but is understandable by anyone. 
And um, I think if you can do that, then you're well on your way to having a great impact on those around you and those on a larger scale. Dr. Gabala, as we start to wrap up here, do you have any kind of closing thoughts, closing remarks, or any other points that you want those listening to really take away from our talk today? Yeah, um, you know, often the question will come up around weight loss or weight management. And I, and I think that's where, as you know, you would be well aware, you know, the the potential role of eight exercise in weight loss is, is often overstated. You know, it's the energy inside of the equation more. That being said, exercise is crucial for successful weight management efforts. And so, you know, apply all of that uh, times four to, to interval training. I think you often see the potential benefit of interval training for weight loss really overstated. You know, personal trainers will talk about the afterburn effect and this idea of heightened calorie burning and recovery. It's definitely real, but it's often overstated. And so I, I think for individuals, you know, treat interval training for weight loss, weight management, like you do other types of exercise. It, it plays a supportive role and an important role, but, but let's not overstate it. And I think that's where sometimes you'll see legitimate pushback around interval training because, you know, experts will say, well, come on, right. Let's, let's not overstate it or give people uh, false, uh, false hope here. Right. And as you were mentioning before, that speaks to the importance of those movement snacks we talked about earlier is just being up and active and moving as much as you can throughout your day, because you could probably if you're doing a couple minutes every hour, you could probably easily put a 20 to 30 minute workout together every single day, just by doing a couple minutes an hour. It's amazing how that can add up. No, it will. And, you know, to me anyway, arguably the most important measure for us is cardiorespiratory fitness. You know, this is the idea of how well your heart, your lungs, your blood vessels circulate oxygen to your other uh, tissues, but it's a really important health metric. And, you know, to put it in perspective, the epidemiological studies would suggest that even having a 10% higher, roughly cardiorespiratory fitness is markedly reducing your risk of all cause mortality, your risk of developing many different chronic decisions, uh, diseases, you know, and that's a change that you can get in six to eight weeks of exercise training. And you can do it in a time efficient way with interval training. And that would compare to maybe a five point drop in your blood pressure or, you know, two inches off your waist. And so when we, when we try to frame the change in cardiorespiratory fitness to a change in these other health markers that we more traditionally measure in the doctor's office, I think it just makes a striking example of how important cardiorespiratory fitness is for health, longevity, much of the themes that you've been touching on. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's important to live a fit and happy life, but it's also nice to live a long one as well. Uh, Dr. Gabala, for people who want to keep up to date with you, your research and everything that's going on over at McMaster University Human Performance Lab, where, where can they find out more about you? Yeah, so certainly you can go to my website, which is just martingabala.com. And I, I basically set that up to provide a little bit of background on me, and, but there's easy links to our work, uh, links to other podcasts that we've done. And so uh, there's a link to the book. Uh, there's also a link to uh, a, a free online course that my colleague, Dr. Stuart Phillips and I uh, developed with some McMaster colleagues called Hacking Exercise uh, for Health. Uh, and, and again, all of the content is freely available through the Coursera uh, platform. So I direct people to that. Uh, I am on Twitter at Gabala M. I tweet occasionally, uh, but you can also see some uh, uh, your touch base with me uh, through uh, through that channel. 
Awesome. We will link to all of that below in case you didn't quite catch it. Dr. Gabala, thank you again for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Dan, again, and for your interest. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.